Welcome to Six Degrees Within YGK, a podcast where we get everyone within the YGK area where we talk about health, fitness, and overall balance of life. I'm your host, Bob Payne, owner of CrossFit Limestone and Limestone Athletics. Hey everyone, welcome to another podcast, Six Degrees Within YGK. So today, we got a member from the gym on here. We have Graham, Graham Whitmarsh. Graham, how's it going? Going great. Good to be here. Yeah, no, thanks for jumping on because I know you got a big trip planned, which I want to hear the details at the end of after we get into your history and stuff. But we'll definitely talk about your trip and past trips too. Okay. Um, so a little history about yourself. So, well, I was uh, actually born in the UK. Um, I went to university there. I'm an engineer by training at university. But after university, I went into the military and joined the submarine service and spent my eight years in nuclear hunter-killer submarines. And after I left there, I went worked in the US and Canada and various other countries and ended up here full-time in 1997. What got you to join the military and then get on a nuclear sub? Because I assume you're not um, claustrophobic to work on those things, or is that just kind of a... Like. I never really thought about it. I mean, the, the real reason I went in was actually money. Um, when I graduated from university, there was a big recession on, and I can actually remember the numbers today. I, I was offered a job as a graduate engineer. Um, offered a job as a graduate engineer. It was 4,000 UK pounds a year was the salary, and uh, I went into the military because in the submarine service at the time, I earned 13,000 pounds a year, and that was a really big difference. And, uh, you know, I didn't think about being claustrophobic. I joined the Navy. I wanted to travel. Um, and then I sort of discovered the submarine service and thought, you know, I'm going to give that a go. And I actually really enjoyed it. Because um, you were telling me the other day at the gym some ways to keep fit. Because back then, you, well, you said that in the military, fitness wasn't a key component, right? No, and I, I don't know where it is today. But certainly when I was there, like basic training and, and all those types of elements, you know, you had to be fit and you got really fit when you did it. But of course, going to see whether it's in a surface warship or in a submarine, it's, it's tough to keep, stay fit, and particularly in a submarine. Now, yeah. do you think that was just kind of the mindset? People just didn't have to? You weren't pushed down from the piers? or I think it was because submarines at the time was such a focused service. Everybody was so focused on what they were doing. I mean, you have to think about the context with a, with a nuclear attack submarine. These submarines can go to sea as long as you want to. The reactor will work for years and years. Your limiting factor is food. So you go to sea with food everywhere. Every one of the walkways is covered. You're walking on boxes of food. The freezers are full. There's no space. And you gradually eat your way through it. And at some point, you run out of food. And then you've got to come back. So you could be at sea for you know, 60, 80, 100, 150 days. And um, this is a tube that's about 30 feet across, about 150 feet long, if I remember now, 300 feet long. Um, and there's three decks in there, and there's not a lot of space for 120 people. There's an awful lot of equipment and a nuclear reactor, and so you're very, very cramped, and, and daily routines around fitness just simply didn't exist. Now, so you would get to know your other crewmates quite well because there's really no break from them, eh? Well, really, you get to meet half of them really well because you I work. guess, yeah, shift work. I didn't yeah, think of that. Yeah, it's shift work. It's basically six hours on, six hours off, seven days a week, no sick leave, and no one to replace you. So I would get up and go on shift at 1 o'clock in the morning. I'd work until 7 a.m. in the control room, um, which is the operations center. I couldn't leave that during that period of time. And then I'd get six hours off. And then the afternoon, I'd go back to work at 1 p.m. until 7 p.m. And everything you have to do around administration, and, and if you want to try to keep fit, you've got to do that in the off hours, like when you're 
on watch, you're on watch. And I was an officer of the watch and had to be in the control room all of the time uh, when we were at sea. Well, you didn't get the unionized coffee breaks. There was no unionized uh, coffee breaks. So you get to know sort of your watch really well, which is half of the submarine. You know everybody else, but you're not as close to them. Um, but yeah, you spend time in the control room with the same group of guys, maybe half a dozen of you for hour, you know, hours and hours, day after day after day. Um, and you know, you talk about a lot of stuff during that period of time. Yeah. So what were some things that you did to keep fit there? Because you told me there was a rowing story and then the bike story. Well, really, I was always keen uh, sort of with fitness and I used to keep myself fit when I was not at sea. And to be honest, when I went into summer, I never really thought about it. It wasn't until I'd been at sea a few weeks, I suddenly thought, you know, this could be a challenge for your health. Like you're, you're not walking anywhere in any day. You don't see the sun. There's no daylight. And there's a lot of sort of side effects from that, obviously, after a long period of time. But on our boat, we had, uh, we had one cycle machine, um, stationary cycle machine, and we had one uh, rowing machine. And they were kind of interesting because they were in different parts of the submarine. The submarine, a nuclear submarine is split in two, the engineering at the back, and then in the center, you have the nuclear reactor, and at the front, you have where all the operations and the torpedoes and the computer systems are. And so the bike was at the front and the rowing machine was at the back of the submarine, but there was simply no, not enough deck space anywhere to put it on the deck. So we had actually lowered it down below the third level on the very, very bottom of the submarine, right adjacent to where the ocean would be three or four inches below. Um, and it was lowered through a hatch, it just fitted. And to get, on, get onto it, you actually had to lower yourself down and drop onto the bike, but you couldn't get off the bike in the space that you're on. You could just cycle it and then pull and climb back up through the hatch <laughs> so, again. So there's no like rest, walk around the bike, catch your breath, it's like you're on, you're on. You're on, you're on. And right in front of you, about a foot in front of you is a steel bulkhead and that's all you've got to look at. So there's no television, there's no sound. <laughs> um, but actually it was a very interesting part of the boat because uh, nuclear submarines can go quite deep, and when they go deep, um, there's a tremendous amount of water pressure, and even though they're made of um, steel, I can't remember, I think it's about two and a half inches, three inches thick, at very deep depths, that massive steel tube shrinks by a significant amount, and the most fascinating thing about cycling was you'd be down there cycling, and because you're at the bottom of the boat, there were some protective shields for the periscopes that ran to the top of the boat. Now, as the submarine shrunk, uh, and you went deep, you could actually see the mounts of these masts moving, which I remember the first time I saw that, I'd never thought of something as strong as a three-inch uh, thick uh, steel tube that's 30 feet in diameter actually being crushed physically. Uh, but you actually can see that it reduces in size, and it's a bit unnerving when you first see it because you don't notice that in the rest of the submarine. And so while you're cycling, most of the time I spent watching and seeing whether we were changing depth by looking at whether you could see the compression and the distance between the top of the submarine changing. There's nowhere else on the boat that you could actually see that. Yeah. And that's what you're just staring at for like a 30-minute sweat sesh. 30, 40 minutes, yeah. You had to negotiate because, I mean, I wasn't the only one that worked out and everybody wanted to work out, say, right after you finish work. And so we used to negotiate like 30-minute slots on there and had to be kind of courteous to other people because, you know, they'd want to use it as well. But, you know, there was never any controversy. It was always kind of resolved amicably. Yeah. And then you had the rower. Yeah, the rower. Now, this was totally different. This was at the back of the submarine. So in the engineering part of the submarine where uh, the steam engines are and the electrical generators and diesel generators, etc. To get there, you actually have to go through a tube through the nuclear reactor because the reactor occupies the entire diameter of the submarine and there's actually a passageway that goes through it that's protected from the radiation. And you go through an airlock at the front and an airlock at the rear of the passageway and you go into the engineering. And the only place they could find where they could lay a rower out was between these big panels of computers that controlled the nuclear reactor. There was from what I can recall, six or eight of these panels, and they had walkways between them, but you could put the rower 
in between it, and you could just about row if you didn't stick your elbows out. So you had to row in a slightly contorted position with your elbows tight in, um, and you basically had the a view of these rows and rows of panels, which were all the safety systems for the reactor. So the joke was always that uh, you know if you stuck your elbows out and hit any of the switches, that you could shut the reactor down by accident. And not that that ever happened, but it did kind of keep your mind on keeping your elbows in because you'd have been extremely unpopular. If, yeah, that uh, would have caused some issues. Yeah, that would have caused some issues for officers. sure. Yeah. No, that's crazy. That is crazy because obviously nuclear subs, you just don't hear them as much nowadays either. Um, I don't know if on purpose there's not in use, but like to be on a submarine, like that's a very rare story to talk about how you kept fit, right? Because uh, my neighbor growing up, he was on a new, uh, I think he said it was a nuclear submarine. He was in the Canadian military. He talked about like he wouldn't go um, weeks without training. The only thing he had on was a skipping rope. So when they came up to... Well, when he was on the ship, he would skip. But when he would come up to, up to land and stuff, that would be his fitness, trying to skip for like 60 minutes. Just yeah, the, the only other interesting fitness thing I did, we were an, a, kind of a unique submarine. We were the very first British nuclear submarine to have cameras fitted on the outside. And we were a submarine that specialized in very special operations under ice. And so I spent most of my time under the polar ice um, for weeks and weeks and weeks. and Chasing the Russians. Uh, chasing Soviet uh, ballistic missile submarines. Obviously, during the Cold War, a little bit different time to now, which is probably why you haven't heard about them so much. But yeah. it was the purpose of a, an attack submarine. But we got to surface through the ice three times at the North Pole. And each time, we stayed for quite a few hours, like somewhere between, let's say, eight and maybe 18 hours, um, depending on... The weather and the, the temperature was always really, really cold. But on a couple of occasions, I actually went for a jog up there. You'd go up and um, make a little circuit, and you can run around, make something about the size of a hockey rink, and you'd kind of jog on the snow. And that was the only other way you'd get fit in those odd occasions that were actually surfaced at the North Pole. Now, how did this um, the sub break the ice? Would it just shoot through the ice? Like how, or like, because you just said... They, they, can, they can get through a very limited amount of ice because they weren't designed to go through ice. They were built prior to the ever anticipating that, that they'd want to operate under ice. So what we actually did was at the North Pole, the ice actually spins. Because the world, the world is spinning around the axis, the, the ice actually cracks at the North Pole. And there's things called pollinias formed, which are long, thin lakes. And they're like spokes of a wheel. And uh, so what you do is you basically go round in a circle very close to the North Pole. And you look up through the cameras. And you see one of these cracks. And you head up to the crack. And then you come up through the crack and surface. And then sometimes there'll be no ice. It'll be actually water, though it does freeze quite quickly if it's a new pollinia. If it's a little older, sometimes they'll have two, three, six inches of ice that you can punch through. And then you basically, once you're on the surface, you've got to watch the pollinia as to whether they're opening or closing. And if they're closing, then you need to dive to get out before you might get caught by the ice or constrained in some way. So, you know, it's a way different to operating a submarine normally, operating under the ice. And it hadn't really been done a whole lot of the time. So we did a lot of experimental work about how to dive and how safely surface. Um, you know, it was really kind of fascinating um, for someone at my age then. I was like 21 years old, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Oh, that's brand new. Now, when on the submarine, that was mainly when you guys were up in the North Pole? Or did you guys kind of travel all around? Oh, no, we went all around over the years um, when as... Uh, far south as the Falkland Islands, um, spent a good deal of time in the Caribbean. Um, with a nuclear submarine, a lot of countries don't want nuclear reactors, and so you're kind of limited as to where you can go. Um, but fortunately, there's a good good number of Caribbean islands that welcomed us, so we spent a good amount of time in, in Aruba, um, 
and various other places, and of course we could go to the US, but you don't get to see the same kind of countries that you typically would on a surface ship because of the restrictions, but um, the nice thing is that they were pretty generous to submariners because it was considered a real hardship to be at sea. They would usually schedule you into somewhere nice sort of when you were heading home and you'd spend a week there on a diplomatic kind of uh, visit. And have a little R&R. &R. Have a time on the island. And like, would you guys like go spend like a couple days there on the island, have a little celebration? Yep, because uh, one of the other nice things was you're not allowed to sleep on the submarine when you're in harbor because of the reactor, so they put you up in a hotel. So it was one of the very small perks that were there that we actually would spend weeks and weeks looking forward to is, you know, a few days on the beach and stay in a hotel before we'd actually have to come back to the UK. And did you guys ever get in a lot of trouble in those days or just <laughs> not going to talk about that? We partied pretty hard. Yeah. Oh, I can only imagine, like, you get back from sea, you got four or five days in a Caribbean island. I can only imagine how much fun that would be. Oh, we, we had a few instances where... Um, you know, people would party pretty hard and we'd be leaving at a fixed time in the morning and there'd be some people that were pretty close to the margin and there was always some excitement when we had a crew member missing because we, we had to leave at 9 a.m. and they weren't there at quarter to nine. And, and this happened not just to, you know, some of the sailors who are on board, it happened to some of the officers as well. But some are you know, they are a team and you have to be a team. You have a very, very close-knit team to work together and they kind of look after each other. But, you know, it was really work hard and play hard. Yeah, no, because my brother, he was a clearance diver there for quite a few years, and they did a few trips down the Caribbean. They always had some stories yeah. about time there. Yeah, that probably can't talk about on the podcast. So I can just smile about them. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of <laughs> remember the glory days. No, um, and then after, because you spent eight years there, then you spent some time in Italy with the military too, or were there other countries too, or was it just? Well, no. When I when I finished. In the submarines, I, I eventually decided that there was too much time at sea. I'd spent, hundred, I'd spent hundreds of days at sea over the course of years, and I was just exhausted. Um, there was no break from it. And I was at the point where I would have gone for command of the submarine, and I decided that this was a good point to exit, because if I didn't go through the command training and qualification, then I would have never gone to sea again. And so I thought, I'll do something different, and um, just decided to leave sort of on a whim and, and walked out and left. And... Uh, and after that, I actually decided I wanted to do something totally different. I went to a jobs fair in London where they were looking at graduates. I was not a graduate. I was approaching 30 at the time. And uh, there was a British company there, British Aerospace, that sold commercial airliners. And uh, I got a job with them selling commercial passenger aircraft. And that was a ton of fun. I got to travel an incredible amount um, in a much better way than I ever did in submarines. I literally got to go all around the world. Well, you, you can spend some time you, like on the mainland, so. Yeah, that's right. So um, it was great fun selling commercial aircraft, extremely different career, and that got me opportunities to live and work in a number of countries. Um, they actually originally brought me to the United States. I lived in Wisconsin, very close to Green Bay. Is that how you became a Green Bay fan? Or I've always been a Green Bay fan ever since then. I mean, I arrived there having no idea about American football. Um, I was actually on a golf course one Saturday and there was no one on the golf course. And I said to someone, where is everybody? Oh, on a Sunday, a big one. And uh, they said, uh, it's the game. Probably <laughs> looking at you like you're an idiot. <laughs> right. Like, well, what do you... Right. What do you why, why aren't you at the game? Yeah. Because that town is a, is, is a ghost town when, yeah. when the football is on. And, uh, you know, it's a very special, unique team. I think, as you know, they're still the only publicly owned team in U.S. professional sports. And yep. the yeah, people at Green Bay, yeah. they, they love their football team. Um. Then what about the, the time when – because you said another point was just climbing up the mountain was your training. Yeah, so one common place that we used to um, 
We used to stop the submarine was in Gibraltar, which is right at the entrance to the Mediterranean, right at the south of Spain. It's a little controversial because Spain sort of still claims sovereignty over it, though I think it's been British or controlled by the um, UK for a very long time. But the Rock of Gibraltar is really literally that. It's a rock. I don't know offhand how high it is, but it's certainly pretty impressive. I and mean, we would literally spend our time and run to the top of it every day. In fact, on a couple of occasions, to make it different, diff more difficult, we had, you know, we'd actually do three-legged race up there. Um, various other things, or carry a heavy pack and try to jog up there. And, um, you know, we do that, frankly, if we're on off days, we do it like two or three times a day. It was just sort of a little bit of um, a way of really working yourself hard and using what you've got around you to stay fit, given that you, you have n no other opportunities. Um, with the military, is that kind of what gave you the like the flavor to always want to go around travel because you've been to quite a few spots. I know you just said with your aviation job, but like you lived in the Bahamas, Wisconsin. Yeah, like Italy, worked in the UK, been in Asia. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it's uncommon. I enjoy traveling. I enjoy working in different cultures. And I've always been someone that would say sort of... I would go where work was. I was really of no fixed abode. So if I get a job in Italy, I go live in Rome for two years. That's how I ended up in Vancouver when I first came to Canada um, and in the US. And, and I would just be driven by the opportunities. It's only recently that I've been more focused on the opportunity, but what I want to do. And as you know, I'm not working at the moment and I'm enjoying not working. And part of it is that I don't have to travel and, and be away and can put some roots down somewhere and establish home, something I really haven't done for my whole life. I've, home has been where I've been. Yeah, well, because you were living down in the Bahamas, then you moved back just at the start of, of the pandemic, or was it during the pandemic? Well, I yeah, I spent about I spent about six years down there in total. Three years was uh, in a full time position, and it, it actually finished in um, February of this year, so February twenty twenty one. And I came back in October. I'd been down there since the beginning of COVID. Um, it's a developing country. It, it it found the early days of COVID really challenging, you know, with a lack of resources and a lack of expertise, and um, so come October, I'd basically been there on my own in my apartment with a beautiful view of the ocean. I mean, like being on vacation for months, but I eventually decided, you know, I, I just can't do this on my own anymore. It was very isolated. So I came back and that's when I came to CrossFit here and met you. Yeah. No, I remember that because I remember you like sending the email like, hey, I want to sign up. Let's go. Like, when did you get into CrossFit then? How long have you been doing that? So I've been doing that five years. Um, I spent most of my life staying fit, uh, bicycling, cycling, a masters and masters racing, and, and really enjoyed that. And and I love the fact that sort of as you get older, you get into a new um, age band, and you always be really competitive. And this is like cycling, like road like cycling. Road cycling. Like, road cycling, yeah. And I did a bunch of mountain biking as well, but I was very very dedicated to it. I trained hard, and I was committed to the sort of the racing elements of it. Um, but then about five years ago, I literally got up one day and said no, nope, I'm not going to go ride for four hours in the cold and the wet. I'm done. And I quit. And I haven't been back on a bike since. And I literally went down the road in Victoria, British Columbia, and started CrossFit, rapidly transitioned over to one in uh, Vancouver. And so I've been doing CrossFit in everywhere I've been since then. Most recently, a member of um, uh, Potcake Fitness in uh, the Bahamas, which was a very sort of culturally interesting gym to go to. It was a ton of fun. And so I do CrossFit now everywhere I go, wherever I travel. I usually do a drop-in. Apart from the trip I'm doing tomorrow because my body feels so beat up after a year without sort of getting any natural any, breaks. Yeah, any breaks. Yeah. I'm going to take two weeks off or three weeks off. Yeah. Now, then down in the Bahamas, they don't use, they don't have AC down there in the gym, eh? No. They just have the big fans. If it's that. a steel box on a concrete pad uh, in the bright sunshine. Yeah. And uh, it's brutal. Yeah, there probably weren't too many classes in the middle of the day, though. 
And that's right, there were no classes in the middle of the day. First one's 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 7 a.m., and then basically nothing till I think 4 p.m. Um, but wow, do you sweat in 45 degrees down there. Yeah. Well, it cuts down on the warm-up time. <laughs> that's yeah. what I always found, because like in the summertime here, our warm-ups are short just because you literally yeah. do like 10 toe touches and like you're starting to sweat. In the yeah. wintertime, you're like, okay, like we have to do a whole bunch of mobility, get the blood flowing and all that. So it is a different... Yeah, and it's interesting. And one of the things I've really enjoyed about CrossFit is the ability to sort of go and drop in wherever you are and have a very familiar routine to how workouts are run. But on the other hand, of you know the dozen or so places I guess I've been, every gym is different. And you know, the one in the Bahamas was just a ton of fun, like doing it all to soca reggae music and you know um, a lot of uh, a lot of very fit, uh, very strong uh, people down there. The the guy who runs the place. Um, next Olympic weightlifter, so I was very keen on weightlifting. And so, you know, like I think you probably may have experienced, but every gym sort of has just a slightly different angle on it. The yeah, core, it's the core di- of its identical. Different culture, yeah. Yeah, but a, but a different culture and a different approach. And so it was there, it was much more lifting um, and uh, a little less on the aerobic side. Well, I guess when it's like plus 35, it's hard to do some aerobic. Yeah, that's right, yeah. 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 Um, but but we had fun. It was a very it was a very close group of people. It was sort of vast majority were local, but there was sort of an eclectic group of other individuals used to work out. A commander in the U.S. Navy and like you do, were just a very interesting group of people who just happened to be down there working and got to know each other really well. What are some other spots that you did some drop-ins for CrossFit? Because like when I haven't done it much lately. Well, before the pandemic wasn't. I wasn't dropping into some gyms as much, but like when I was over in Europe a couple of times, hit a couple of different gyms like in Sweden, Germany, down in the States, New Orleans and things like that. Like, so what is some other ones how you hit other CrossFit gyms? Well, I, I kind of do it everywhere when I have time and I've done them in the UK because I have two kids over there. So until COVID, I was back pretty frequently visiting with them. Um, they're young adults, so... Um, would always do in London or in the southwest of England. Um, various places in the U- U.S. Uh, I've done them, not in Asia, um, but it's a you know as you said for anybody who hasn't done a drop in, they should if they feel like getting a workout when they're traveling. I've done it in Hawaii; that was kind of fun as well. Um, you know, it is a very good way I think to sort of get in, maintain that motivation of having a group around you, so you have to do it on your own. And well, like to me, I, like I love doing it just because one, from a coaching aspect, I always learned a couple things. Like, man, the way that coach led that warm up, that was cool, a mobility thing. But too, it's just fun. You learn, see different things, and does like what you just said kind of keeps you motivated like okay that was a lot of fun yeah and and uh, yeah and and like besides the culture of the gyms there's no doubt that the, the coaches have slightly different takes on how they do things and their sort of approach to it and yeah i think i've learned i've learned things in different gyms you know i think now i'm comfortable in almost any but um it is sometimes interesting to do things a little bit differently have things explained a little bit differently to you and also do it with a different group i think is probably healthy as well ultimately yeah. And a lot of times when Tara and I, when we would do that, stop in a gym, then we start talking to the, the, like the coach, and they'd be like, oh, go down to this um, spot here. This is the best spot for breakfast. And they start telling you all like the good local fan favorites. And to me, that's my favorite thing about traveling, is yeah. finding what the locals want, and then you go, or what not they want, um, where they go, and then you start hanging out in their spots. You get to see it from their point of view, right? Yeah, one of the, I mean, actually down in the in the Bahamas, they had one really good thing that I enjoyed that we used to do about every six months, which was they would set up um, 
kind of workout stations on a number of different beaches that are about a mile or two apart. And so you do like an extended workout, but you do 10 or 15 minutes at one place, then you have to run two miles or a mile to two miles to the next one and do it there. And these were all on just beautiful white sand Caribbean beaches. And it was a ton of fun. Like, That'd be awesome because the, once you start getting hot, jump in the ocean. That's exactly what going. you do. Yeah. And so everybody in the gym would pretty much turn out to do those. You had a huge turnout and you start at different places and sort of work, work your way around and, and really enjoyed doing that. I miss that. Yeah, and do a little party at the end, a little social Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you're going on a trip tomorrow. What's that trip about? So tomorrow, Costa Rica. Um, every year, my buddies and I try to do a motorcycle trip. Um, and this is not high-end. We, we rent, like, smaller dirt bikes, travel extremely light. Um, we never make a plan. And uh, we'll arrive there tomorrow. We'll got one night's hotel booked. We'll pick up the bikes and... We'll head off. Given the time of year, we're going to go by weather because I don't like motorcycling in the rain. It's miserable, yep. uh, even in a warm country. So um, we've already checked. We think sort of in the northwest uh, it'll be drier. And so we'll generally head off, and we usually make a plan day by day. Um, and it never had any major mishaps doing it that way in all of the places that we've been. And we usually do a ton of time off-road, so we try to get off the roads and go on dirt trails and... We've had to develop all sorts of different techniques for navigating because, for example, a few years back we were in Laos, which I really love that as a country. It, uh, it, um, while it's a communist country, uh, it has no Western brands, no development. It's extremely um, authentic still uh, to what it was, perhaps one of the least developed places I've been. But we went there and our map, of the, the only map we could find was kind of the size of an A4 piece of paper, had the entire country on it. And so we would literally sort of look at an area that didn't have roads, find some dirt trails and travel on them. And we developed a technique, I used to call it navigating by power lines, which is you follow the power lines all the time because <laughs> power lines go to people. Yeah. And if the power lines are getting smaller, it means you're going away from civilization. And if they are getting bigger, then means you're in the, going towards yeah, civilization. Going towards city. And we have literally navigated hundreds and hundreds of kilometers without getting too badly lost um, doing that. I don't know what will happen on this trip, but I'm sure there will be something similar. Um, well, because I guess in a lot of those spots, you're not, you can't use Google Maps, right? Um, well, there's no, no cell coverage. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you can't. So you'll literally say we roughly know if we head west, we'll hit a road in 50K, and providing we generally head west and we keep an eye on the power lines, um, you know, we'll get there. Uh, and we really had no ability to ask questions because the language is completely incomprehensible if you don't understand it has no links at all to English and so um, we did often sometimes get people to write down minor instructions on a piece of paper that we show to people but unfortunately in that case we realized in the rural areas there's very high levels of illiteracy and people couldn't read we would have sort of this is where we're trying to go written on a piece of paper can you give us directions and we wouldn't be able to get an answer that's um, crazy like how many guys do this four just four of us yeah, yeah. Um, and it's the same group with friends from Vancouver. And, uh, and as well, I say, what, what are some of the other s trips you guys have done? Um, well, we've, uh, we've done trips into uh, Central America, into South America. I unfortunately missed one into Colombia the year before last because I had to work, which I was really disappointed about, which apparently was incredible because they went up into the cloud forests and uh, got extremely wet in the weather, but just had a marvelous time and sort of riding down. Apparently it's an amazingly colorful and interesting country, and so I was oh, really wow. sad that I missed that. We're planning, I hope, next year to go into northern India and ride about 800 kilometers up into Nepal. 
Um, but there's a very, very short window of opportunity for us to do that because... Uh, weather. Weather, yeah. And so we're, we're sort of planning that as a potential in the future. So, you know, it, it's very um, organic. We just kind of sit down and decide on a venue and, and go. That is absolutely amazing. I'm envious because there's nothing like more free than just be like, okay, well, let's head in this direction tomorrow. No plan. And just kind of relax. Yeah, and you know, what's so fascinating to me is just the dynamic. We are all good friends, and so we get along fine, but we all have quirks. Like, And one of my friends is just very relaxed about where we go. I'm kind of in the middle. And then one is, we call him our official cartographer. He always gets the maps out and wants to have a plan and be really certain and does all of the research. And I was on the phone with him the other day, and he's researched every town in northern Costa Rica and knows absolutely everything to see, and I haven't frankly done anything yet to get ready to go <laughs> yeah. in terms of understanding the country so you know he'll he'll take the lead in directing and we'll we'll go and if um on a consensus we don't like where he takes us we'll just drive off and go, and go somewhere like, yeah we're going somewhere else yeah <laughs> yeah and and that has actually happened we've sat down for breakfast and he's said well let's go here it's you know 75k we'll be there we can have lunch there and do this and three of us are going yeah no we want to go south we'll just ride off and and, but we we never fall out over it. It's always fun. We have some days sort of where those of us that are more just want to do whatever takes our fancy that day, and other days it's a bit more structured. So um, we try not to ride at night. It's a little bit dangerous, and we probably try not to spend more than four to six hours on the bikes in a day because that can get a little bit exhausting after a while. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and it's kind of fun because they're, they're relatively cheap to rent. You're not going fast, and we obviously try to be really safe. Um, Have you ever run into any issues where you're like, oh, that was like a close one, that was sketchy, someone trying to steal from you? or Never stealing. Um, we've had mudslides get in the way. I had to carry bikes over the mud in rainfall and that kind of thing. Um, we've nearly got arrested a couple of times in Asia, I think, for bumping into what I guessed might have been illegal logging uh, operations. Um, <laughs> we once, I think, accidentally went way too close to the Chinese border and had a Chinese border card pointing his gun at us. It wasn't very nice. Um, but it doesn't happen very often. I mean, it, it, you have to be sensible. And yeah. you can't well, be that's what I always found because, like, all the lot of spots I traveled, like, when I used to, like, Guatemala and Mexico and stuff, you know if there's going to be trouble, you can see it from afar, right? You're like, yeah, that looks kind of sketchy going down that road. Like, I'm not going to walk into that bar there that has, like, a curtain going across it and there's playing, like, this loud type of music. You're like, yeah. Like, if you got a head on your shoulders, I'm pretty sure you can avoid trouble, right? Yeah, you, you, I think you've just got to be sensible. We always try to not assume that things are going to go badly and don't actually spend a lot of time, I think, being overly cautious. But I think you have to be just careful. Don't put yourself in a diff in difficult situations. And, and when you do, and we've had various confrontations over the years with people upset and cars and stuff, is our motto is we always always back down. Like you never never get sort of into any kind of difficult situations due to your own attitude. Yeah. What was some um, the best food you ate? Because I love talking about food and travel. Oh, I, I think, funnily enough, my favorite food, and it's not even necessarily fully motorcycle-related, though we've done a lot, is just street food in Asia. Um, you know, just street vendors. And I discovered uh, the great vaccine, Ducarol. I don't know if you've come across that, but uh, it gives you some protection against cholera and E. coli, which means that you can <laughs> probably push the boundaries on food a little bit more than you might otherwise. But it works for me. I've taken some this time. And so, um, you know, we're usually pretty ethnic about the food. We're quite happy to go eat, you know, 
dollar food from from street vendors and that kind of thing. Well, the, usually the, like the least decorated shops are like the best, right? Yeah. Like the hole in the wall in the side that where it's just some like family old mother serving the food. Like that's always going to be the best home cooked, authentic food that you can never buy in a restaurant. Yeah. And, yes, and that's true. I think that's true the world over. Actually, having lived a couple of years in Italy, one of my memories from there back in the 1990s was just how the best restaurants were the least obvious ones that, that you really you know would not notice unless you were looking and also just how fascinating they can be I remember being in one hill town there and going in and inside the, this tiny little restaurant there was a whole bunch of pictures of Muhammad Ali and I thought this is kind of weird for a you know one of these hillside towns in Italy and and so I'm fortunate I, I speak basic Italian and I was talking to the guy who owned it and he actually was one of the kind of uh, logistical support uh, people for Muhammad Ali in their training team. He didn't actually train him but I guess he ran around with water and whatever you need. Like he was part of the crew. Yeah, yeah, he was part of the crew and so he had all these pictures here and he had he just had amazing stories about that time, you know, which he cherished that time obviously and he'd gone back to run this little restaurant up in um, up in one of the hillsides in, uh, in Italy, just north of Rome. And an another one I remember there, similar kind of thing. There was a bunch of very interesting paintings on the wall, but they all depict sort of scenes of nature. And uh, this was a, the guy was an artist, and he did a lot of the art for the World Health Organization reports that you see on the covers, and he had all of his original ones in there. And so I think you don't have to be in developing countries to find, like, interesting restaurants and things. I mean, they're still there in, in some developed countries, but that is, for me, the fascination of travel. Um, well, you're going for the experience, and you're yeah. going to learn not, like, to have this perfect restaurant, meal, whatever. You're like, man, that, like, you're, that's where you're going to learn about food the most or learn about the... Yeah, and if you're, if, you're, if you're traveling off-road in Asia on your bike and you can often go to a restaurant where there's A, no menu, nobody speaks any English, um, and you don't have cell phone coverage to use any translation. And so, you know, you really have to figure out you walk into a restaurant not being able to order anything. So we have a well-developed technique of walking around, pointing at things we like, and um, figuring out ways to order it without any ability to communicate. And it's always worked out. I don't think we've ever had anything that, uh, you know, wasn't good. No, it's like even with the, even in the cities here in Canada, like Kingston, right? The best pizza joints are the ones that kind of look the sketchiest, yeah. right? They're a little bit rugged and a little bit run down. You're like, no, they have the best sauce. They have the, and same with like all food from more and like the Middle East and Asia and all that. They all, the like the less decorated they are, the better they are. Yeah, for me, I, I enjoy the place actually because I'm not really a foodie. Like it's I'm not someone that sort of seeks out food and food experiences, but I do like the experience in terms of the location that they're in. And I just think it's, you know, it's fascinating to go on these off-beaten track to somewhere that's a restaurant that actually doesn't even look like a restaurant. It's half of someone's living room and the dishes are washed in the stream uh, adjacent to the to the actual building. I mean, we've seen all sorts over the years, which is why the Duke Roll is really helpful um, to make sure you don't get sick. Oh, that's amazing. Graham, well, hopefully you enjoy your trip and all the best safe travels with that, eh? Yeah, look forward to, look forward to seeing everybody when we get back. Okay, awesome. Enjoy, man. Thank you so much for jumping on here. Thank you. Thank you.